kingdom mission work that he has called us to. Let's first talk about this passion. As I said in verses 1 and 2, we're going to go through this whole chapter, by the way. I wasn't going to make Jeremy read all of that. But um, as we've learned, Nehemiah is, uh, he is sad or he is saddened for four months upon hearing this news. We're told in chapter 2, verses 1, that in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. And now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then he says, I was very much afraid. For four months, upon hearing this news, um, it seems there's a struggle in Nehemiah to hold back how burdened his heart was for this great need in Jerusalem. Edwin Yamuchi says, a commentator, that a king's servant like Nehemiah was expected to keep their feelings in check, to be hidden from a king like King Artaxerxes, to always display a, a cheerful countenance countenance before such a high royal figure. And so far, Nehemiah had managed to do this, but now his burden was literally in his eyes, Yamuchi says. And the king recognized that. And it was, uh, the, the Hebrew literally says that he was in pure misery or sadness. So much so that he could not hold back no, any longer how upset he was. And this wasn't sadness of a, a culmination of a difficult day. Remember that he was sad because of the promises of God. If you'll remember the prayer of Nehemiah in chapter 1, he says, God, remember what you promised the people. That's the foundation of his sadness and his despair. Because he, he so wanted to see God do what he was going to do in Jerusalem. And so he was fueled by the word of God in his great despair to see Jerusalem rebuilt once again. Now what does Nehemiah do with this zeal for God? Well, we, we saw that last week. He responds with action. First and foremost, we studied last week that he immediately stopped and he began to pray. That he devoted that, that great passion and zeal in his heart. That it was a sadness, but it began, it began to become uh, a, 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 a moment of, of, of action that was needed for his, his life. He could not do anything but think about and move toward responding in faithfulness to go back to Jerusalem. So I would say... Based upon chapter 1, where he asks God in his prayer, give me mercy before the sight of this king, his desire at the beginning was to ask or request a, a, an opportunity to go back to Jerusalem. But I think it says a lot for us as believers to think about Nehemiah not acting immediately on that request, but instead praying faithfully for four months before this is discovered with the king. And of course, that in turn is a challenge to us to think about these passions that God has given us for his glory and for his kingdom. 
what God has called us to do. We must uh, be responsive. We must act in obedience, but yet we must also stop and pray. This church plant was bathed in prayer. It was bathed in wisdom as we sought God's uh, an understanding of what God might do uh, in this work. Very careful to make sure that this was something that we weren't just desiring to do, but this is what God wanted to happen. And I think that's a good warning for us. As God lays these passions upon our heart to do things for his kingdom, we should, we should very much be excited and be zealous, but also be very patient. Bathing that idea in prayer. Matter of fact, you might ask a couple questions as God gives you this zeal for something for his kingdom. And, and one of those questions might be, is this zeal that I have centered around God's glory or is it centered around man's glory? Nehemiah wanted to do what was necessary to accomplish the promises that God had made to his people. Therefore, Nehemiah's zeal came not from his own ambition, it came from God's word. And that's a great place for passion and zeal to come from. One of the fears that I had was, Nathan, do you want to plant a church just because it's popular right now? Do you want to plant a church because of all these people that you love and you care for? Or do you want to plant a church because you see a great need for the, the core principles and values that this church stands for? And upon discussions with uh, the, the, the soon-to-be elders of, of our church at that time, the, the, the decision was clear that this was a gospel-centered, God-glorifying decision, not something we were trying to do for our, our own glory. Kind of a contrasting thought would be in Acts, Simon the sorcerer, who wanted the power of the Holy Spirit. Why did he want that power? Not for God's glory. He wanted it for his own glory. He wanted it for financial gain. So you would ask, is this passion, Lord, that you've given me for your kingdom and for some particular work in your kingdom, is it centered around your glory or man's glory? But also, God, is, are you bringing other people alongside me to see this need and affirm and maybe even join you in the efforts? I love how... This, this desire for Nehemiah was, was uh, undergirded with this permission that he's been given by the king Artaxerxes. God literally brings, and as we saw in Ezra also, stirring the heart of a pagan king as an affirmation that this is what Nehemiah needed to do. Nehemiah was stepping away from his post. He was leaving behind a, not only a, a good job as a cupbearer, but even the request itself could have gone very sideways, offending the king of Persia. But God had stirred the heart. And you can ask yourself, God, if you are calling me to do something for your kingdom, are you bringing other people alongside me to affirm that in me, to support me, to even join me in those efforts? Now, some of that can be because you're a popular person. Others could be because God is raising up these people to catch the vision and the burden that you have for that thing, whatever that thing is in your life, that kingdom work, and he's raising people up to join you. 
We see this again in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul was given support in Antioch. The whole church in Antioch, this powerful church in the early church history time, was faithful and, 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 and excited to see the zeal of Paul to, to make disciples. And, he, and, he, and they were so encouraged and supportive of his work that they sent him out with Barnabas to plant churches. And I think that's a great, those are both two really faithful and helpful questions to ask as you wrestle with this passion that God may give you for his kingdom. You can think about as we've studied through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, Paul talks to Timothy about this passion and this zeal. Right? He says and uses a specific word, the gift. 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, Do not neglect the gift that you have, which you've been given by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Here, Timothy has been given this passion and the zeal to preach the word of God. The elders came alongside him, affirmed that, and Timothy's being told by Paul, don't neglect that gift. Again, he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, For this reason I remind you to fan the, into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying of, uh, on of my hands. So Timothy's gift which is synonymous for this passion or zeal for God's kingdom, was preaching and pastoring God's people. Paul was planting churches. Philip was an evangelist. These are just examples, but what's interesting is that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're told these words about the church of the New Testament. Now there are varieties of gifts. Now let me just stop right there. The varieties of gifts, we know those gifts are given by the Holy Spirit when we put our trust in Christ. So everybody in this room and that are joining us online that believe and trust in Jesus, that have put their faith in Him, receive not just the gift of the Holy Spirit, but spiritual gifts to serve the church. Now, we're not talking about talents. We're not talking about uh, your vertical ability to leap really tall or far, which I don't have that gift, Brother Adam. I'm talking about a gift to be used for the glory of the church in Christ's name. That gift is in very much conjunction with the passion and the zeal that God has given you for His kingdom. He's not going to give you some distorted uh, you know, gift and, and passion that go in opposite directions. God has given me a passion, and from the very beginning of ministry, a passion and a zeal to preach God's Word, and He has given me the opportunity to do that throughout the, the years of, of ministry in my life. They are in conjunction. So Paul says, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So here's what I want you to come away with. God gives us passions for His kingdom, and He gives us gifts to work in, in, in ways that are the application, 
the ways in which we carry out those passions, those works of kingdom mission and ministry. And if we don't use those gifts, we are neglecting what God has given us by His Spirit. God's given it to us for the church. How are you using that? What task for His kingdom have you been wrestling with in your heart? He's giving you this passion about doing something for His glory. And let me encourage you, church, act upon that. Do it. Not how to build a deck on your house or, or, or your plans to go on a cruise. We're talking about a kingdom mission that brings about a way that you can exalt Christ's name on the earth. And whatever that might be, as Nehemiah demonstrated, as Christ demonstrated, spend the early moments of that passion with prayer, taking that to the Lord, seeking clarity and direction, seeking support and affirmation from others in your life. Do they see these things in you? Do they see opportunities in the things that you want to do? Nehemiah was so burdened and sick, the king recognized it. But he doesn't just start with a pa- or stop with a passion, it moves to courage. Because we, we, we get this passion and we get this zeal and we can, we can live in fear and it can, that fear can keep us from fulfilling that which God has called us to do. And what we see in verses 2 through 8 is, is Nehemiah doesn't sit on that fearfully, Although he is afraid, he pushes through his fear, puts on courage that only comes from God because of God's power. Look at verse 2. He says, the king says to him, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then, then he says to, to the king, or then he tells us, Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruin and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then the king said to me, well, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I might rebuild it. Notice that Nehemiah in verse 2 is overwhelmed with fear. He's overwhelmed with fear, I think, for two reasons. One, because, again, his disposition before the king could have been offensive to the king. Being called out by that was probably shocking to him. But secondly, be reminded that that in our study in Ezra chapter 4, do you remember how we were studying the opposition to the early efforts to rebuild the temple? And in Ezra chapter 4, there's this flash forward, there's this, uh, there's this looking forward into the future where we go from Cyrus's reign all the way to Artaxerxes' reign where they, the, the enemies of, of God in the Samarian, Samaritan region, they write letters to Artaxerxes. And in Ezra chapter 4 verse 23, be reminded that Artaxerxes actually puts a stop to the rebuilding efforts of the Jews. Now that was pre-Nehemiah, Early on in King Artaxerxes' reign, but that had to be on his mind, and and potentially the the one of the causes of the fear. 
And so think about that. Nehemiah is, 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 is facing great fear and, and trepidation, but he has faith that is greater than his fear. And if we, church, are going to do the work of God's kingdom in this world, we have to step out of this fear that we live in. Fear of truth. Fear of what God's word actually says. We have to be uh, so over and and, and above our fear that we are so faithful and, and putting our trust in God's provision regardless of what we might understand The Bible tells us consistently, King David tells us in Psalm 31, to be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. When we think about our fear and the courage that's needed for us to step forward toward God's uh, uh, kingdom work for us, we we must be reminded that our faith is in the knowledge and understanding of God. It's not an experience. Experiences come and go. But the way in which God has revealed Himself, the very power that He has displayed in His Word through Jesus Christ, that's the source of our faith. That's where we find courage. So when we are falling into fear not wanting to do what God has called us to do, we must be reminded from God's Word that He is an all-powerful, self-existent God. In His omnipotence, in His self-existence, we know that God needs nothing from us. We need everything from Him. So whatever He's calling us to do, we have no reason to fear because He can provide all that we need. Matter of fact, George Mueller, in his ministry, made it a point that to build five orphanages and care for 10,000 orphans, he never asked for any money. That he would pray and he would trust God continually to provide all the needs of those children and God provided by faith. And so we can too learn that our courage comes from faith in God's power and His strength. Knowing that Christ is the greatest example of power manifested to us so that we have no reason to fear. That we should never shrink back from requesting these things of God Because we know that God will allow those things which He is calling us to do to prosper. So in verse 6, the response is beautiful. The king doesn't say, well, let me think about it. He says, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? That's his answer. That's an affirmative. That's confirmation that God was at work in the heart of this king, in the work that God had called Nehemiah to do. And he acknowledges that in verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Church, don't allow fear to keep you from what God's calling you to do. God will provide as he's called you. Your fear cripples you, it incapacitates you. Jesus tells us over and over again, 
do not fear. The religious leader in, during Jesus' day, or the, excuse me, the ruler of the synagogue in Jesus' day was so afraid of his daughter dying and, and, and she was sick and, and she was uh, near death. And he goes to Jesus and he finds um, Jesus and he asks Jesus to come and heal. And, and you know the story, Jesus is on his way uh, through a, a thick crowd to go to this young lady. And as he's going, he meets the woman that had been bleeding for 12 years and he's, and he's interrupted. And by the time he cares for this woman and interacts with this woman and heals her, this child has died. And the, this ruler of the, of the synagogue is saddened as the news comes to him. And Jesus looks to him and he says, basically in the most simplistic words, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. I pray that that would be our encouragement today. So much of our fear keeps us from doing amazing, extraordinary things for God. Number three, we see Nehemiah move from a passion to do God's work to the courage that it takes to do it. Now he moves to a strategy. In verses 9 through 19, we see that his courageous faith then sends him on his mission. And so he has now a letter in his hands that is granting him safe passage to go through the areas beyond the river. He now has also a letter granting him the resources that he needs from the forests uh, that would provide the, the lumber and the material to rebuild there in the city. And he's on his way in verses 9. And it says that in verse 9 that he comes to the providence beyond the river. Which we've identified through these studies that this is the, the area of Samaria. And he gave these letters to the king uh, of, of those regions. And it says the king had sent with me officers, officers of the army uh, and horsemen, so so Nehemiah is accompanied by by soldiers. In Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, they are they hear this and it displeases them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of Israel. So these again are, uh, as we've seen, enemies of the Jews, and you can imagine that these people, Sanballat and um, and uh, I've, I've lost the other name, Tobiah, thank you. Uh, Sambalat and Tobiah, these enemies, these are Samaritans that, that were now um, beginning to see what we'll see later on in Jesus' day, a, a greater uh, offensive division between Jew and Samaritan. It had not risen to that point yet, but there's obviously a, a, a divisiveness there, an opposition that's there. And most particularly because these Samaritans don't want to see Jerusalem come to its prominence again. They don't want to see uh, the great uh, city of Jerusalem uh, be glorious once again. They definitely don't want to see these uh, walls being erected again um, in, in their region. And so they are offended by that. But Nehemiah presses forward. He's uh, given safe passage with these um, 
these soldiers, and he now enters into the city. And so verse 11, when I went to Jerusalem, I was there three days, and I arose in the night with a few men with me, told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but one uh, that, on which I rode, and I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gate that had been destroyed by fire. And I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool where there was no room for the animal that went under the, to pass. And then I went up at night by the valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered the valley gate and I so returned. And the officials, he says, did not know where I had gone and what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials and the rest who were, uh, who were going to do the work. So we see Nehemiah going into this uh, kind of this strategic surveying uh, time in, in, in his, his, his operation. I have a couple maps for you because in the next couple weeks we're going to have to think about these, um, these things more clearly. I don't know if you can see that very well. But there you see the, the fountain gate at the very uh, bottom left. And then the dung gate, which was above that on the west wall. And this orange uh, wall here, that is the area of Jerusalem during the time of Nehemiah. Okay? So this is the bottom half of that. I didn't, didn't want to put that completely on there. So you have the valley gate at the top, the dung gate, and the fountain gate. These are the three that are, that are mentioned in our passage here today. Where So you can kind of understand that Nehemiah was inspecting this, maybe starting uh, from the west and, and making his way down to the south and, and back up uh, to the east, inspecting these walls. And, of course, you can, if you know anything about topographic maps, you can see the contour lines there show uh, just how he would be able to go up onto the ridge and look from afar and see what needed to be done. He's developing a strategy. We're not going to deal with these today, but this is the top half of, of that area that needed to be rebuilt. Again, in the orange, this is the uh, city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. And just for perspective, this is that same area. You can barely see the orange, right? Well, the outward larger portion from the very edge in black, all the way around, that's the size of Jerusalem during the days of Jesus. So you can see how, how much expansion happened from the time of Nehemiah's day to the time of Herod ruling over that region and Jesus obviously living there. But Nehemiah, going back to our, our, our first picture, is inspecting. He is strategizing, thinking about how he might accomplish the things that God has set him to do. This is survey work in construction. This is figuring out the problem, the resources that are needed, and the action steps to make a solution. That's pretty simple uh, planning in, in, our, uh, in my opinion. And yet, over and over again, in, in my ministry particularly, it's easy for me to get so caught up in passion and so get caught up in zeal that you never spend the time strategizing. 
You never spend the time organizing and, and planning and, 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 and coming up with a, a scope of work that needs to happen in order for you to accomplish those things. This is where a team of people is so helpful. This is where having a support structure around you is so necessary because when you are going to accomplish the work of, of God, you need people around you. And Nehemiah has not even broached this situation yet. He will soon, but he is right now just by himself surveying, figuring out what's needed, planning God's work so that he can carry it out the, in the most effective way. And so again, this, this aspect in our lives of planning God's work, for us it might be, how am I going to disciple my children? How am I going to reach my neighborhood or my sports team or my workplace? Well, what are your plans? Yeah, your goal is to see them come to Christ and see them follow after Jesus, but how are you going to get there? What steps are you going to take to, to make that happen? Having a strategy is necessary as we come to work in God's kingdom and for His glory. And so finally, we come to this last section, and that is doing all things for God's glorious name. This is where Nehemiah presents the idea to the Jews. He's gathered his information. He is now going to promote this idea uh, to the people. In verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also for the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. Now in verse 17 there's a key word there that we need to, to focus on. It's, it says that we, may, that we may no longer suffer derision. That word there literally means that we may no longer be disgraced. Because Jerusalem lying in ruins was not only a disgrace to the people, but ultimately it was dis a disgrace to the name of God. This was His holy city, people. This was the, 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 the promise of God to make this city a glorious city again. To elevate God's people above all the nations. The very opposition that was occurring from Sambalat and Tobiah was, was an example of them not wanting to see that prominence return. <coughs> and so, the purpose was that Nehemiah wanted God's name to be glorified. And so, <clears throat> as we come to, to think about the, the work of God in our lives, <clears throat> we want to, to do so with glory and honor. Not our honor, but the honor of Christ. That we would so not want His name to be defamed and dishonored in this world, but that we would want to do whatever was necessary to be obedient to his word, to be um, 
to be so faithful to the call in our lives so that he would be glorified. When we think about the the Great Commission, we think about the call of the church to use the gifts that God has equipped us with to make disciples to all nations. Well, making disciples doesn't bring us glory. It brings God glory. Seeing people transformed from death to new life brings great glory. Planted churches and and growing Christian communities, uh, Christian ministries that spring up and equip the church, all these things are examples of of God's name being proclaimed among the nations. (coughs) And so we... We think about first, or excuse me, Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And so Nehemiah's words to them is, let's rebuild the wall so that this city, this glorious city, the name that, that is represented in it, the temple that holds the very presence of Yahweh as it descends upon the, the, the temple, that it would not be disgraced. But that that Jerusalem representing our God and our Savior would be honored among the nations. This is Nehemiah's purpose in completing his kingdom work. And the people join with him. Again, affirmation, excitement over the, the call that has been put on his life. The faithfulness of Nehemiah to, to present this to them. They could have rejected it. They could have denied it. But instead they say, no, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthen their hands for the good work. In verses 19 and 20, we see once again these enemies, this opposition come in, trying to dissuade and, and, and discourage the work from happening. But let me just conclude with verse 20. He says, then I replied to these enemies, that the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Church, we have to understand that as God calls us to do a great work for his name, if he's calling us to that, if he's all-powerful God that can do all things, then by all means, he will make that thing prosper. And our desire is not to force that prosperity, to mimic or somehow uh, produce that prosperity ourselves. Our job is to be faithful to the calling of God upon our lives, and we trust Him to do and make that thing prosper according to His purpose. We simply just trust in Him, patiently waiting for the Lord to bring fruition as He sees fit. As we think back to George Mueller in, uh, the, in one of the writings that he uh, wrote, he gives a great example of why he did what he did in England with these orphanages. Why did he build these orphanages? What, were, what was his ultimate goal? And Mueller writes that first he wanted God to be glorified. That God would be pleased to furnish me with the means. And it's being seen that it is not a vain thing to trust in Him. And that thus the faith of this children may be strengthened. Secondly, he says that his desire was for the spiritual welfare of the fatherless and motherless children. And third, their temporal welfare. 
And he concludes with this quote that I think is very helpful for us. He says, It seems to me best done by the establishing of an orphan house. It needed to be something which could be seen, even by the natural eye. Now if I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith, obtained without asking any individual the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan in house, there would be something which, with the Lord's blessing, might be instrumental in strengthening the faith of the children of God, besides being a testimony to the consciousness of the unconverted of the reality of the things of God. This then was the primary reason for establishing an orphan house. The first and primary object was the work, of the work was, and still is, that God might be magnified by the fact that the orphans under my care are provided with all they need only by prayer and faith without anyone being asked by me or my fellow laborers whereby it may be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayer still. I love that quote because it reminds us that as George Mueller and all of us should be, the very faithfulness that we lend to the work that God has placed upon our lives is a very act of His glory in this world. It's a manifestation of God working through weak individuals to do great and extraordinary things. And we can always live our lives distracted by the things of this earth so that we never give our time and our resources and our intention, attention to the things that God's called us to do. And that pleases Satan greatly. It pleases him to distract us in such a way. Or we can so live by prayer and faith in God's call for kingdom mission that we would put aside those distractions in order to bring God glory throughout all the world in doing what He's called us to do by the gifts that He's given us to do them. And so I hope and pray that you would be faithful, that I would be faithful to continue to do what God has called us to do in this world for His glory. And by doing so, He would receive the praise. Let's pray. Father, I pray for our our people here uh, this evening, those that are online. Lord, that you might use us for great work. And forgive us, God, for the distractions of this earth that keep us from doing uh, kingdom work in this world. Lord, the affairs of family and the affairs of society oftentimes are... Uh, a thing that puts us in somewhat of a comatose state where we forget why we exist on this earth, why you have saved us. And so, Father, help us be reminded even tonight, stir in us again those passions and those, the, the zeal that you have given us uh, in our spiritual lives to do great things in your name so that we would lose sleep even, and lose appetite for, uh, until we are faithful to, to accomplish those things for your, for your glory. Help us, God, in those moments to trust, to trust you to provide the, the resources needed. Like George Mueller, knowing that you can provide all that's needed without asking a, a single individual. God, help us to trust you. And know that you, by your good hand, will make these things prosper 
as you see fit. And so, Lord, I don't know your plan for each one of us, but my desire as a pastor is to see you use these people to do extraordinary things for your kingdom, that they may see the dead raised to new life, that they may see churches planted, workplaces won to Christ, neighborhoods changed from division to unity and love for Jesus, that children would believe in Christ and trust alone, Him alone for salvation. God, these are the things that we pray for and that you desire to use us to do in this world. And we thank you that Jesus Christ has made this possible by saving us and sending us out. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's stand together. What is our hope?